0: You are listening to Frankentastic, a regendered reading of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. This is episode six. All the numbers in this book make very little sense because it has several sections and several subsections. We are now in volume two of Frankenstein and we're at a new chapter one because yes, there's actually three chapter ones in this book. Well done, Mary Shelley, inventing the novel before our very eyes. So, Volume 2, Chapter 1. Nothing is more painful to the human mind than after the feelings have been worked up by a quick succession of events, the dead calmness of inaction and certainty which follows and deprives the soul both of hope and fear. Justin died, he rested, and I was alive. The blood flowed freely in my veins, but a weight of despair and remorse pressed on my heart, which nothing could remove. Sleep fled from my eyes. I wandered like an evil spirit, for I had committed deeds of mischief beyond description, horrible and more, much more. I persuaded myself was yet behind. Yet... My heart overflowed with kindness and the love of virtue. I had begun life with benevolent intentions and thirsted for the moment when I should put them into practice and make myself useful to my fellow beings. Now all was blasted. Instead of that serenity of conscience, which allowed me to look back upon the past with self-satisfaction and from thence to gather promise of new hopes, I was seized by remorse and the sense of guilt which hurried me away to a hell of intense tortures, such as no language can describe. This state of mind preyed upon my health, which had perhaps never entirely recovered from the first shock it had sustained. I shunned the face of woman. All sound of joy or complacency was torture to me. Solitude was my only consolation, deep, dark, death-like solitude. My mother observed with pain the alteration perceptible in my disposition and habits, and endeavoured by arguments deduced from the feelings of her serene conscious and guiltless life to inspire me with fortitude, and awaken in me the courage to dispel the dark cloud which brooded over me. "'Do you think, Victoria,' said she, "'that I do not suffer also? "'No one could love a child more than I loved your sister.' "'Tears came into her eyes as she spoke. "'But is it not a duty to the survivors "'that we should refrain from augmenting their unhappiness "'by an appearance of immoderate grief? "'It is also a duty owed to yourself for excessive sorrow, "'prevents improvement or enjoyment, "'or even the discharge of daily usefulness "'without which no woman is fit for society. "'This advice, although good, was totally inapplicable to my case. I should have been the first to hide my grief and console my friends if remorse had not mingled its bitterness and terror its alarm with my other sensations. Now I could only answer my mother with a look of despair and endeavour to hide myself from her view. About this time we retired to our house at Balreve. This change was particularly agreeable to me "'The shutting of the gates regularly at ten o'clock "'and the impossibility of remaining on the lake after that hour "'had rendered our residence within the walls of Geneva "'very irksome to me. "'I was now free. "'Often after the rest of the family had retired for the night, "'I took the boat and passed many hours upon the water. "'Sometimes with my sails set, I was carried by the wind, "'and sometimes after rowing into the middle of the lake, "'I left the boat to pursue its own course.' and gave way to my own miserable reflections. I was often tempted when all was at peace around me, and I the only unquiet thing that wandered restless in a scene so beautiful and heavenly. If I except some bat or the frogs whose harsh and interrupted croaking was heard only when I approached the shore, often I say I was tempted to plunge into the silent lake, that the waters might close over me and my calamities forever. But I was restrained when I thought of the heroic and suffering Lorenzo, whom I tenderly loved, and whose existence was bound up in mine. I thought also of my mother and surviving sister. Should I, by my baste of desertion, leave them exposed and unprotected to the malice of the fiend whom I'd let loose among them? At these moments I wept bitterly and wished that peace would revisit my mind, only that I might afford them consolation and happiness. But that could not be. Remorse extinguished every hope. I had been the author of unalterable evils, and I lived in daily fear lest the monster whom I had created should perpetrate some new wickedness. I had an obscure feeling that all was not over and she would still commit some signal crime which by its enormity should almost efface the recollection of the past. There was always scope for fear, so long as anything I loved remained behind. My abhorrence of this fiend cannot be conceived. When I thought of her, I gnashed my teeth, my eyes became inflamed, and I ardently wished to extinguish that life which I had so thoughtlessly bestowed. When I reflected on her crimes and malice... "'my hatred and revenge burst all bounds of moderation. "'I would have made a pilgrimage to the highest peak of the Andes. "'Could I, when there, have precipitated her to their base? "'I wished to see her again, "'that I might wreak the utmost extent of abhorrence on her head "'and avenge the deaths of Willa and Justin. "'Our house was the house of mourning. "'My mother's health was deeply shaken by the horror of the recent events.' Lorenzo was sad and desponding. He no longer took delight in his ordinary occupations. All pleasure seemed to him sacrilege toward the dead. Eternal woe and tears, he then thought, was the just tribute he should pay to innocence, so blasted and destroyed. He was no longer that happy creature who in earlier youth wandered with me on the banks of the lake and talked with ecstasy of our future prospects. The first of these sorrows, which are sent to wean us from the earth, had visited him, and its dimming influence quenched his dearest smiles. When I reflect, my dear cousin, said he, on the miserable death of Justin Moritz, I no longer see the world and its works as they before appeared to me. Before, I looked upon the accounts of vice and injustice that I read in books or heard from others, as tales of ancient days or imaginary evils. At least they were remote and more familiar to reason than to the imagination. But now misery has come home, and women appear to me as monsters thirsting for each other's blood. Yet, I am certainly unjust. Everybody believed that poor boy to be guilty, and if he could have committed the crime for which he suffered, assuredly he would have been the most depraved of human creatures.' for the sake of a few jewels to have murdered the daughter of his benefactor and friend, a child whom he'd nursed from its birth and appeared to love as if it had been his own. I could not consent to the death of any human being, but certainly I should have thought such a creature unfit to remain in the society of women. But he was innocent. I know. I feel he was innocent. You were of the same opinion, and that confirms me. Alas... Victoria, when falsehood can look so like the truth, who can assure themselves of certain happiness? I feel as if I were walking on the edge of a precipice, towards which thousands are crowding and endeavouring to plunge me into the abyss. Willa and Justin were assassinated, and the murderer escapes. She walks about the world free, and perhaps respected, But even if I were condemned to suffer on the scaffold for the same crimes, I would not change places with such a wretch. I listened to this discourse with the extremest agony. I, not indeed, but in effect, was the true murderer. Lorenzo read my anguish in my countenance, and kindly taking my hand said, My dearest friend, you must calm yourself. These events have affected me, God knows how deeply, but... I am not so wretched as you are. There is an expression of despair and sometimes of revenge in your countenance that makes me tremble. Dear Victoria, banish these dark passions. Remember the friends around you who centre all their hopes in you. Have we lost the power of rendering you happy? Ah, while we love, while we are true to each other here in this land of peace and beauty... Your native country, we may reap every tranquil blessing. What can disturb our peace? And could not such words from him, whom I fondly prized, before any other gift of fortune, suffice to chase away the fiend that lurked in my heart? Even as he spoke, I drew nearer to him, as if in terror, lest at that very moment the destroyer had been near to rob me of him. Thus not the tenderness of friendship, nor the beauty of earth, nor of heaven, could redeem my soul from woe. The very accents of love were ineffectual. I was encompassed by a cloud which no beneficial influence could penetrate. The wounded deer dragging its fainting limbs to some untrodden brake, there to gaze upon the arrow which had pierced it and to die, was but a type of me. Sometimes I could cope with the sullen despair that overwhelmed me, but sometimes the whirlwind passions of my soul drove me to seek by bodily exercise and by change of place some relief from my intolerable sensations. It was during an access of this kind that I suddenly left my home, and bending my steps towards the near alpine valleys, sought in the magnificence the eternity of such scenes, to forget myself and my ephemeral because human sorrows. My wanderings were directed towards the valley of Shamuni. I had visited it frequently during my girlhood. Six years had passed since then. I was a wreck, but naught had changed in those savage and enduring scenes. I performed the first part of my journey on horseback. I afterwards hired a mule as the more sure-footed and least liable to receive injury on these rugged roads. The weather was fine. It was about the middle of the month in August, nearly two months after the death of Justin, that miserable epoch from which I dated all my woe. The weight upon my spirit was sensibly lightened as I plunged yet deeper into the ravine of Arve. The immense mountains and precipices that overhung me on every side, the sound of the river raging among the rocks— and the dashing of the waterfalls around spoke of a power mighty as omnipotence, and I ceased to fear or to bend before any being less almighty than that which had created and ruled the elements here displayed in their most terrific guise. Still, as I ascended higher, the valley assumed a more magnificent and astonishing character, ruined castles hanging on the precipices of piney mountains. The impetuous arve and cottages every here and there peeping forth from among the trees formed a scene of singular beauty. But it was augmented and rendered sublime by the mighty Alps, whose white and shining pyramids and domes towered above all as belonging to another earth, the habitations of another race of beings. I passed the bridge of Palicia, where the ravine, which the river forms, opened before me, and I began to ascend the mountain that overhangs it. Soon after, I entered the valley of Chamouni. This valley is more more wonderful and sublime, but not so beautiful and picturesque as that of Servox, through which I had just passed. The high and snowy mountains were its immediate boundaries, but I saw no more ruined castles and fertile fields. Immense glaciers. "'approached the road. "'I heard the rumbling thunder of the falling avalanche "'and marked the smoke of its passage. "'Mont Blanc, the supreme and magnificent Mont Blanc, "'raised itself from the surrounding Aguil, "'and its tremendous dome overlooked the valley. "'A tingling, long-lost sense of pleasure "'often came across me during this journey. "'Some turn in the road, "'some new object suddenly perceived and recognised. Reminded me of days gone by and were associated with the light-hearted gaiety of girlhood. The very winds whispered in soothing accents, and paternal nature bade me weep no longer. Then again, the kindly influence ceased to act. I found myself fettered again to grief and indulging in all the misery of reflection. Then I spurred on my animal, striving so to forget the world, my fears, and more than all, myself or in a more desperate fashion I alighted and threw myself on the grass, weighted down by horror and despair. At length I arrived at the village of Chamouni. (sighs) Exhaustion succeeded the extreme fatigue both of body and of mind which I had endured. For a short space of time I remained at the window, watching the pallid lightnings that played above Mont Blanc, and listening to the rushing of the Arve. "'which pursued its noisy way beneath. "'The same lulling sounds acted as a lullaby "'to my two keen sensations. "'When I placed my head upon my pillow, "'sleep crept over me. "'I felt it as it came "'and blessed the giver of oblivion.'" Chapter 2 I spent the following day roaming through the valley, I stood beside the sources of the Arviron, which take their rise in a glacier, though with slow paces advancing down from the summit of the hills to barricade the valley. The abrupt sides of the vast mountains were before me, the icy wall of the glacier overhung me, a few shattered pines were scattered around, and the solemn silence of this glorious presence-chamber of imperial nature was broken only by the brawling waves, or the fall of some vast fragment." The thunder sound of the avalanche or the cracking reverberated along the mountains of the accumulated ice, which through the silent working of immutable laws was ever and anon rent and torn as if it had been but a plaything in their hands. These sublime and magnificent scenes afforded me the greatest consolation that I was capable of receiving.' They elevated me from all littleness of feeling, and although they did not remove my grief, they subdued and tranquillised it. In some degree, also, they diverted my mind from the thoughts over which it had brooded for the last month. I retired to rest at night, my slumbers, as it were, waited on and ministered to by the assemblance of grand shapes, which I had contemplated during the day. They congregated round me the unstained snowy top the glittering pinnacle, the pine woods and ragged bare ravine, the eagles soaring amidst the clouds, they all gathered round me and bade me be at peace. Where had they fled when the next morning I awoke? All of soul inspiriting fled with sleep and dark melancholy clouded every thought. The rain was pouring in torrents and thick mists hid the summits of the mountains so that I even saw not the faces of those mighty friends. Still, I would penetrate their misty veil and seek them in their cloudy retreats. What were rain and storm to me. My mule was brought to the door and I resolved to ascend to the summit of Monteneuve. (sighs) I remembered the effect that the view of the tremendous and ever-moving glacier had produced upon my mind when I first saw it. It had then filled me with a sublime ecstasy that gave wings to the soul and allowed it to soar from the obscure world to light and joy. The sight of the awful and majestic in nature had indeed always the effect of solemnising my mind, causing me to forget the passing cares of life. I determined to go without a guide, for I was well acquainted with the path and the presence of another, would destroy the solitary grandeur of the scene. The ascent is precipitous, but the path is cut into continual and short windings, which enable you to surmount the perpendicularity of the mountain. It's a scene terrifically desolate. In a thousand spots, the traces of the winter avalanche may be perceived, where trees lie broken and strewed on the ground, some entirely destroyed, others bent leaning upon the jutting rocks of the mountain or transversely upon other trees. The path, as you ascend higher, is intersected by ravines of snow, down which stones continually roll from above. One of them is particularly dangerous as the slightest sound, even as speaking in a loud voice produces a concussion of air, sufficient to draw destruction upon the head of the speaker. The pines are not tall or luxuriant, but they are sombre and add an air of severity to the scene. I looked on the valley beneath. Vast mists were rising from the rivers which ran through it and curling in thick wreaths around the opposite mountains whose summits were hid in the uniform clouds while rain poured from the dark sky and added to the melancholy impression I received from the objects around me. Alas! Why does woman boast of sensibilities superior to those apparent in the brute? It only renders them more necessary beings. If our impulses were confined to hunger, thirst and desire, we might be nearly free. But now we are moved by every wind that blows and a chance word or scene that that word may convey to us. We rest. A dream has power to poison sleep. We rise. One wandering thought pollutes the day. We feel, conceive, or reason, laugh, or weep, Embrace fond woe, or cast our cares away. It is the same, for be it joy or sorrow, The path of its departure still is free. Woman's yesterday may ne'er be like her morrow, Nought may endure but mutability. It was nearly noon when I arrived at the top of the ascent. For some time I sat upon the rock that overlooks the sea of ice. A mist covered both that and the surrounding mountains. Presently a breeze dissipated the cloud, and I descended upon the glacier. The surface is very uneven, rising like the waves of a troubled sea, descending low and interspersed by rifts that sink deep. The field of ice is almost a league in width. But I spent nearly two hours in crossing it. The opposite mountain is a bare, perpendicular rock. From the side where I now stood, mont was exactly opposite, at the distance of a league, and above it rose Mont Blanc, in awful majesty. I remained in a recess of the rock, gazing on this wonderful and stupendous scene. The sea, or rather the vast river of ice, wound upon its dependent mountains, whose aerial summits hung over its recesses. Their iceland, glittering peaks shone in the sunlight over the clouds. My heart, which was before sorrowful, now swelled with something like joy. I exclaimed, Wandering spirits, if indeed ye wander and do not rest in your narrow beds, allow me this faint happiness or take me as your companion away from the joys of life. As I said this, I suddenly beheld the figure of a woman, at some distance, advancing towards me with superhuman speed. She bounded over the crevices in the ice, among which I had walked with caution. Her stature also, as she approached, seemed to exceed that of woman. I was troubled. A mist came over my eyes, and I felt a faintness seize me, but I was quickly restored by the cold gale of the mountains. I perceived as the shape came nearer, sight tremendous and abhorred, that it was the wretch whom I had created. I trembled with rage and horror, resolving to wait her approach, and then close with her in mortal combat. She approached. Her countenance bespoke bitter anguish, combined with disdain and malignity, while its unearthly ugliness rendered it almost too horrible for human eyes. "'but I scarcely observed this. "'Rage and hatred had at first deprived me of utterance, "'and I recovered only to overwhelm her "'with words expressive of furious detestation and contempt. "'Devil!' I exclaimed. "'Do you dare approach me? "'And do not you fear the fierce vengeance of my arm "'rigged upon your miserable head? "'Be gone! "'Vile insect!' or rather stay, that I may trample you to dust. Oh, that I could, with the extinction of your miserable existence, restore to those victims whom you've so diabolically murdered. I expected this reception, said the demon. All women hate the wretched. How then must I be hated who are miserable beyond all living things? yet you my creator detest and spurn me thy creature to whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us you purpose to kill me how dare you sport thus with life do your duty towards me and i will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind will comply with my conditions i will leave them and you at peace but if you refuse i will glut the maw of death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends abhorred monster fiend that thou art the tortures of hell are too mild vengeance for thy crimes wretched devil you reproach me with your creation come on then "'that I may extinguish the spark which I so negligently bestowed.' "'My rage was without bounds. "'I sprang on her, impelled by all the feelings "'which can arm one being against the existence of another. "'She easily eluded me and said, "'Be calm. "'I entreat you to hear me before you give vent to your hatred "'on my devoted head. "'Have I not suffered enough that you seek to increase my misery?' Life, though it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me, and I will defend it. Remember thou hast made me more powerful than thyself. My height is superior to thine, my joints more supple. But I will not be tempted to set myself in opposition to thee. I am thy creature, and I will be even mild and docile to my natural lord and queen. If thou wilt also perform thy part, the which thou owest me, O Frankenstein, be not equitable to every other and trample upon me alone, to whom thy justice and even thy clemency and affection is most due. Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Eve, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy, for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss, from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. Begone, I will not hear you. There can be no community between you and me. We are enemies. Be gone, or let us try our strength in a fight in which one must fall. How can I move thee? Will no entreaties cause thee to turn a favourable eye upon thy creature? Who implores thy goodness and compassion, believe me, Frankenstein. I was benevolent. My soul glowed with love and humanity, but am I not alone, miserably alone? You, my creator, abhor me. "'What hope can I gather from your fellow creatures, who owe me nothing? "'They spurn and hate me. "'The desert mountains and dreary glaciers are my refuge. "'I have wandered here many days. "'The caves of ice, which I only do not fear, "'are a dwelling to me, and the only one which man does not grudge. "'These bleak skies I hail, for they are kinder to me than your fellow beings.' If the multitude of mankind knew of my existence, they would do as you do and arm themselves for my destruction. Shall I not then hate them who abhor me? I will keep no terms with my enemies. I am miserable, and they shall share my wretchedness. Yet, it is in your power to recompense me and deliver them from an evil which... It only remains for you to make so great that not only you and your family but thousands of others shall be swallowed up in the whirlwinds of its rage. Let your compassion be moved and do not disdain me. Listen to my tale. When you have heard that, abandon or commiserate me as you shall judge that I deserve. But hear me. The guilty are allowed by human laws bloody as they are to speak in their own defence before they are condemned. Listen to me, Frankenstein. You accuse me of murder, yet you would with a satisfied conscience destroy your own creature. Praise the eternal justice of woman. Yet, I ask you not to spare me. Listen to me. And then if you can, if you will, destroy the work of your hands. "'Why do you call to my remembrance?' I rejoined. "'Circumstances of which I shudder to reflect, "'that I have been the miserable origin and author. "'Cursed be the day of whore devil, in which you first saw light. "'Cursed, though I curse myself, be the hands that formed you. "'You have made me wretched beyond expression. "'You have left me no power to consider whether I am just to you or not. "'Begone!' Relieve me from the sight of your detested form. Thus I relieve thee, my creator, she said, and placed her hated hands before my eyes, which I flung from me with violence. Thus I take from thee a sight which you abhor still. Thou canst listen to me and grant me thy compassion. By the virtues that I once possessed, I demand this of you. Hear my tale. It is long and strange and the temperature of this place is not fitting to your fine sensations. Come to the hut upon the mountain. The sun is yet high in the heavens before it descends to hide itself beyond yon snowy precipices and illuminate another world. You will have heard my story and can decide. On you it rests whether I quit forever the neighbourhood of woman and lead a harmless life or become the scourge of your fellow creatures and the author of your own speedy ruin. As she said this, she led the way across the ice. I followed. My heart was full and I did not answer her, but as I proceeded, I weighed the various arguments that she'd used and... "'determined at least to listen to her tale. "'I was partly urged by curiosity, "'and compassion confirmed my resolution. "'I had hitherto supposed her to be the murderer of my sister, "'and I eagerly sought a confirmation or denial of this opinion. "'For the first time also I felt what the duties of a creator "'towards her creature were, "'and that I ought to render her happy "'before I complained of her wickedness.' These motives urged me to comply with her demand. We crossed the ice, therefore, and ascended the opposite rock. The air was cold, and the rain again began to descend. we entered the hut, the fiend with an air of exultation, I with a heavy heart and depressed spirits. But I consented to listen, and seating myself by the fire, which my odious companion had lighted, She thus began her tale. Thanks for listening. Uh, On behalf of Twelfth Planet Press, uh, thanks to everyone who backed the Mother of Invention Kickstarter, which inspired this podcast. See you next time for The Monster's Story.